You are listening to Attention, the audio journal for architecture. This is issue number seven, Detective Work, guest edited by Megan Erdley. This is episode number six, The Sound of Secrecy. I first encountered Brian Finocchi's work through his incredible writing with the DeMillet Collective. Composed by Javier Arbana, Nick Sowers, and Brian Finocchi, the DeMillet Collective is a trio of sound artists critical geographers, and architects that seek to understand and abolish policing and the militarization of everyday life. In 2012, they published a piece called Garpa Zoo, a fictional design proposal for a paramilitary training facility that bore a remarkable resemblance to the very real Blackwater Lodge and Training Center. As its name might suggest, this complex was built by the mercenary Eric Prince to train military and police on 6,000 acres of indoor and outdoor urban simulations. As he collaborated on this project, Finocchi tried to formulate language that could capture how U.S. investments in artificial intelligence and bioengineering have produced fanged landscapes that can consume and destroy the world around us. What struck me about his work then, and what has really stuck with me, is a willingness to reckon with the surreal, nearly unthinkable aspects of U.S. empire and its police state. I was thrilled when Brian agreed to contribute something for this issue of attention, and I was lucky to sit down with him for a few conversations as he began to ask, what does secrecy sound like? Could you tell us a little bit more about the piece that you're composing for this issue of attention? Well, when first started thinking about it, one of the things that we haven't fully developed and maybe some of our own collaborative writing was really just around suspicion, this idea of suspiciality and, and how suspicion is a form of spatiality. And what is suspicion as a producer of space and what would that sound like even when it's normal? More even directly, what do the sites that we, as the watchers of the watchers, what do we imagine, say, NSA listening facilities sounding like? If those are really maybe the suspicious sites from my perspective, then, you know, what do they sound like? You know, a lot of the walks that Nick and Javier and I have taken over the past have been around kind of the edges of Google Campus and Moffat Field and Coast Guard Island here in the Bay and trying to circumnavigate these closed off private places that incubate so much techno-military innovation these days. And, and, but when you get out there, you know, you realize a lot of these things, it, it, they're, they're, they're buffered by giant swaths of pastoral landscape. You know, you hear nothing. There's this kind of weird sublime that peripheralizes these places. And, but even thinking about the spaces themselves, I mean, you know, there are offices, there's data centers, and there's, there's the hum of, of data, and there's, you know, there's machines, and there's tech. You know, it, but in some level, it's all just really banal. So anyway, this narrative, I wanted to try to create a moment or depict a, a short little story about, um, you know, there's the, there's the outside, there's the edge of, of one of these places. And then the piece attempts to navigate the listener through a series of territories that then get into one of these places. And then eventually you arrive at a neural center point within this facility and something happens. And there's an event that happens there. You don't really know what's going on. So I wanted to kind of play with some certain ambiguities about this inner and this outer edge space and getting closer and closer within or to the center of some kind of secretive listening station. You don't really know what's going on. And then that triggers a whole other, could be a fallout. It could be another process that's being seen as suspicious from even within itself. It could be a scenario where there's a leaker inside or there's a cover up. How did you become interested in architecture? 
for a while now, for 10 plus years, I mean, maybe even going back, yeah, well, definitely going back longer. I mean, there's always an interest in architecture and that's kind of how I've gotten to kind of where I am today. I mean, I think it started with an interest in architecture for a while and writing about architecture and doing so from not exactly being an architect or even wanting to be an architect. I mean, there was a period as a kid growing up that I thought I was going to be an architect, but then as I got further down the road, I realized that design wasn't really something I wanted to do, but the spatial implication and more particularly like the politics of space, that really became kind of the focal point. And uh, so as I really transitioned further and further away from architecture per se and more into a kind of spatially oriented discourse of things, it got more into geography, it got more into sound interests, it got more into these things and these that, that, that produce space and different ways of diagnosing space or interrogating space. And, um, you know, eventually that led to what you know was my work with my other two buddies, uh, Javier Arbona and Nick Sowers, uh, sort of under the, the name DeMillet. And, uh, you know, once we three got together about 10 years ago, initially, it was really about how can we diagnose the military conditions, the common everyday kind of military conditioning of space. What do you mean by that? This was all sort of in the wake of 9-11, and we wanted to find our own way of documenting just urban change and the politics that get encoded by that insidiously and different ways that the public is, is disappearing or reasserting itself and these edges and these lines and how privacy has, has become the main colonizer of space, really in urban space. I mean, even San Francisco right now, I mean, it's full-on privatization of the city. I mean, you can just walk down the street and every day see some new sign, you know, closed for private event or... Uh, I think signs that in places that weren't sealed off that way, you know, 10, 15 years ago. So. so to some extent, you see the militarization of space as another means for privatization and the development of widespread surveillance. Let me ask you, having started with an interest in the politics of space, how and why did you become interested in sound as a means of addressing that? Nick was very much into sort of sound and, and, and really getting his own kind of sound interests off the ground, which really sort of kicked my own sound interests uh, into a new gear in terms of listening and paying attention to listening things, things that you weren't normally listening for or um, and then how to digest that. What does sound mean? What is this relationship between the space's production of the political and, and the political production of space and it's been a series of writing attempts to try to understand these things, maybe within a kind of a narrative. For me personally, I think my input there has always been more about trying to understand or think about these things, raise questions and ask questions, and then try to sort them out in some kind of narrative. I'm really interested in what you're saying about how your approach to sound is always driven by narrative. Could you elaborate on what your approach to narrative has been and how you're encountering the relationship between text and sound? But, you know, trying to tell some kind of a story um, has always been, I think, my go-to means for trying to understand a place. I mean, places insinuate stories even in, in and of themselves, but stories happen in places. And without that understanding of that place, without the place being the large mirror for the whole thing, um, stories otherwise just seem kind of, you know, in vacuums to me. And so maybe sometimes I go the other direction where I'm just all about sort of describing a space and a place and there's not a whole lot of a story necessarily going on, but... I think sound is, is a place where you can really kind of play with that more. You don't have to tell such a direct story as you would in a novel or a story or something. You can just go through a place and, or be led through a place or wander through a place. And just the experience alone, I think, is, is very telling. And what about the relation of narrative to sound? Sound, I mean, the thing about sound in, in 
just playing with sound, recording sound, listening to sound, making sound and, and arranging sound or into some kind of narrative is that it really puts the intuitive as your antenna at the forefront. I mean, you, you can't, you're not singing exactly what you're always hearing and you're not always sure what you're even listening for. And, and there's a less, I think, aggressive or literal attempt to try to describe something. And there's more kind of opening up of your own apertures to, to, to things to surface and then to try to absorb them and channel them into some kind of form that makes sense to you. And that's where I think the narrative has always been my attempt. It's, it's, it's an attempt to understand my own shadow in space. That whole sort of detective-y space of sub suspicion is not only very intriguing to me, but I, mean, I think it's just so contemporary. I mean, I feel like we live in such a state where everything is perceived in its proximity to being suspicious. I mean, even the most non-suspicious, innocent things are still being scanned and categorized and taxonomized and put into these narratives of suspicion by the surveillance state. So there's another aspect there that I think fascinates me about narrative is that, you know, we're all sort of these unwitting protagonists or antagonists uh, within this fiction that the surveillance state, I think, is constantly writing uh, and, and assembling based on uh, data you know, harvesting and just it's constant watching and listening to us. What do the surveillance state's narratives look like and how can they be weaponized or how are they being used or how can they be modified, scrolled forwards and backwards and, and different points of our data that's been recorded can just be sort of assembled to make certain stories of us when it wants to fit whatever narrative it is the surveillance state wants to tell. If it wants to impl implicate someone, you know, a perfectly innocent person, does it have the ability to do that? Because of everything that it's recorded us and, and its ability to put that and arrange that in some kind of narrative. So there's a kind of an, maybe an indictment of just narrative on some level. I'm really interested in the way that you're linking the medical language of diagnosis to the task of policing the police. Is the language or the strategy of diagnosis important to you here? I feel like we definitely need new tools and we need to think about if we're going to if we're going to use the language of, of diagnostics or pathology or medical kind of language or mechanical language or whatever, whatever the lens it is we're using. I feel like they're all sort of forged in a certain cultural conditioning that is flawed or has been preempted in some ways by the state. You know, we're living at a point now where, I mean, everything is done at such an ambient level. I mean, everything is behind the scenes. Everything is sub-audible. Everything is, you know, invisible or the opposite. It's invisible because it's just so commonplace and in plain sight. Forensics is is a natural place to go because you want to sort of understand what all of these invisible objects or things or um, you know, what, what, what their agency is. You know, a lot of people are maybe very interested in forensics these days because it seems like a building block to kind of diagnose materiality or look at materiality, really focus and interrogate materiality so that whatever truth or meaning or a contribution it has to a larger narrative around justice that, you know, we can glean from it. But, you know, sometimes I think that that gets, that gets uh, fetishized. There's, a, there's an apprehension on my part about my own piece that, you know, what in the end, I'm listening to what have I created here? Have I been irresponsible on some level with some of the sounds that I've chosen to include? You know, some samples of police brutality that have, you know, gotten off the web. I mean, in my contextualization of those or in my inclusion of those, you know, have I been careful? What am I trying to say with those? Am I just, you know, using those for my own aestheticization or something? You know, what is the appropriate lens to sort of talk about that, you know, or to use to kind of decolonize or decarceralize space, you know, and, and to really kind of assess 
you know, all that is insinuated in space from a kind of private security, military, you know, sort of nascent level. How do we, you know, how do we uh, go about kind of sifting through all of that? And, and, and what's the proper language? What's the proper analytic? You have been listening to Attention, the audio journal for architecture. Issue 7, Detective Work. Guest edited by Megan Erdley. This is episode number six, The Sound of Secrecy. The interview with Brian Finocchi discussed the sound piece that follows, Dark Freaks. The interview was conducted by Megan Erdley on October 11th, 2019. The episode was researched, written, and narrated by Megan Erdley. It was edited by Kurt Gambetta and Joseph Bedford and produced by Ethan Curtis, Joseph Bedford, and Ariana Karate. Thanks to the Graham Foundation for Advanced Studies in the Fine Arts for their generous support.